Steve, thank you for leading. Uh, thanks to Katha Magic for our music this morning. Kev, uh, your support at the back uh, has been uh, greatly appreciated. So, as Steve has alluded to, we are looking at John chapter 1. Now, now there'll be some of you thinking, okay, what's John chapter 1 got to do with Christmas? Well, for me, it's quite, quite straightforward. And the fact that actually what we're going to do in the next few Sunday mornings as we, uh, in the lead up to Christmas, is focus very much on putting Jesus back at the centre of Christmas. Because ultimately, that's what Christmas is about. The clue is in the name. But the fact is, we see that around about us with such nauseating regularity that Christmas, the whole meaning has been forgotten. And so by studying the, 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 the first five verses of this chapter in John that we're going to look at this morning, and the passages to come in the subsequent weeks, we're going to focus back on Christmas. And focus back on not just Christmas, but we're going to focus on Christ being the centre of Christmas. So with that in mind then, we've heard, Steve has read these five verses uh, to us, and we need to get in mind our heads with this, that the fact of the whole point of Christmas, as we've said, is not just Christ. But we need to understand the uniqueness of his virgin conception, and equally unique the birth of Christ, the Son of God. So we look at this, these few verses in John chapter 1 then, and we see that they are, they are standalone in painting the picture of who Christ is. And yet while they paint the picture, this isn't the purpose of John writing this book. That purpose comes in John chapter 20. And he says this, that Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe in Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that my believing, you may have life in his name. So John makes it very clear, in a, perhaps an odd way, at the end of his book, as to why he's just written what he's written. Now I, you know, I have the benefit of a whole Bible, so I can do this and not take it out of context, but bring it back to the front and show you that the point of the whole purpose of John writing this incredible book and the word that we've just read is to point people to Jesus and it's a book of signs. It's not just a book of signs, but it is a book of evidence there is a world out there that says i'm on the evidence for god i had a conversation recently with somebody who says i'm a scientist you need to show me evidence okay, okay. there it is oh yeah well, well no that's just a book and it we can't really go on go on that all right okay so what about people's experience then of of uh, what christ has done in their lives oh no that's too subjective Ah, right, so what you want me to do is take you to the room, open the door and go, there's God, pulling all the pulls and pulling the pins and levers and everything else and making everything do what it should be doing. Because evidence is the all-important thing, isn't it, when it comes to who Jesus is. The evidence that we have within our own lives, albeit subjectives. The evidence that we see in creation around us. The evidence that we see in our friends. The evidence that ultimately we live in the word of God. It's all evidence. But it just proves on when people, which one they want to pick and go with. But the point of this is that John writes this book as a book of signs. In other words, this book of evidence, its purpose is to catalogue John's eyewitness events that Jesus is who he says he is. And so as Christmas comes into view, it's entirely appropriate that we focus our minds once again on Christ at Christmas. So we've read our passage together. But we'll consider this from John's perspective, who, in my opinion, gives us the most profound, comprehensive, and evangelistic introduction 
to Jesus you will ever read. So John starts in those verses that we read together by outlining who Jesus is. Now, okay, so we're like we're at the beginning, because we are, aren't we, in verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But hang on a minute, because Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So have we happened upon a contradiction? Is John saying what John is saying in verse 1, is that completely different to what Moses wrote when he wrote Genesis? No. Because what John is showing is that just as God was there at the beginning when he created the heavens and the earth, what John does is show that Jesus was there at the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. So what we get right there at the beginning is the word was. John writes the word was very deliberately. Because if he's used the word has been, or if he used the word was then, it changes the entire meaning of what he is saying. But he says the word was very deliberately. Very deliberately because he shows that exactly where Jesus is and where Jesus was there. He was there at the beginning. What he's showing is that God has an eternal nature. We picked that up from Genesis. In the beginning, God. And then God goes on to create. In the beginning was the Word who was with God. And so therefore Jesus has an eternal nature. And there'll be those of you that are thinking, actually, we're rapidly approaching the Trinity. And we are. And we need to, to get a full picture of exactly what John is trying to say this morning. And yet what is interesting is this, is that Matthew begins, Matthew begins his gospel by focusing on the genealogy of Jesus. By showing that he is from the line of Abraham. So that tells me that Jesus is both man, because he has a genealogical line, comes from Abraham. If you go into Chronicles, you'll, cry, you'll, you'll chase that right the way through back to Adam. And so therefore, we see that from the beginning of Matthew... That Jesus is man. And yet we see here from the beginning of John is that Jesus is God. So we see right at the beginning of these two Gospels, we have the explanation that Jesus is both man and God. And so we want to wrap that up in a nice little phrase we can do. Two words, God incarnate. And so there we arrive at John chapter 1 this morning. So if we are going to be, and we're going to get grips with just who Jesus is, we need to be as clear as John is that Jesus is the eternal Son, and that he was there with God before the beginning. So now we arrive then at the second part, that the Word was with God. We're still in verse 1, we haven't gone any further than that. The Word was with God. This indicates separation. The fact that the word was with God indicates that they are two separate entities. They are two separate beings. They are two separate things, yet they are part of the same, as we'll come on to a little bit later. So if the word was with God, 
which we trust and we believe, I trust, as we read it in Scripture, that leads on to a big question. What is he doing there? What's he there for? If we know that God spoke the world into being, and we know that God has already existed from time past and before time and outside of time, we know that God is and always will be, we know that Jesus is and always will be, what is he doing there? Why is he there? Well, the answer is very straightforward. That Jesus is there existing with God in a fellowship. That's part of the Trinity. Have a fellowship relationship with each other. Now we can put that very crudely in terms that we can understand. If you are married here this morning, you exist as part of a fellowship. That's a very base level thing and we need to go no further than that. But what we need to understand is just the importance of who Christ is from these verses in John. That he exists as part of the Trinity. He exists as part of the relationship and fellowship with God. That he is there. You see, God and Jesus have always existed in this loving relationship with each other. The triune existence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is fundamental to the Christian faith. Yet while it is fundamental, and while it is so key and important, we need to be careful as to how we explain it, as to how we unpack the Trinity to people. How many terms have we used an analogy? Something like, very similar to what I just used, to describe the Trinity. I've heard it described like water, being that you could water being in three parts, ice, steam, or um, liquid. I had a moment of scientific brilliance, then you can tell. You, we see that water can be described in three parts, yet that's not the way to describe the Trinity. I've heard it described as an egg, that you have shell, white, and yolk, and they all exist together. No, that's not how it works. Scripture makes no analogy of the Trinity at all except to call it Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so with that in mind, Wayne Grudem, the, uh, the uh, Bible translator and quite a prominent Bible teacher, says this, says, It is best to conclude that no analogy adequately teaches about the Trinity, and all are misleading in significant ways. The truth of the Trinity is that God is three persons. And that being in three persons is fully God. We need to get our heads around the fact that God is big enough to have relationship within himself. That's who God is. And so Jesus exists as part of that trinity. Part of that fellowship of relationship of parts. But ultimately there is one God. One Son, Jesus Christ. T.F. Torrance, the Scottish theologian, said this, that Trinity is not so much a Christian formulation as a way that God has revealed himself. So we just looked, albeit briefly, at what the Trinity is. And now T.F. Torrance has unpacked this purpose of the Trinity for us. So if we get our heads around the fact that the Trinity is an existence fellowship of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Spirit will come on to a little bit later. We now get to grips and understand from just the very opening verse of John chapter 1 what the Trinity's purpose is. 
It's the way that God has chosen to reveal himself. If we're going to accept and believe in the Jesus that John speaks about, then we have to accept and believe in him as part of the Trinity. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. As I said, we believe in a God who is big enough to have relationship within himself. So God reveals himself to us as a trinity of, the, of persons. Those persons are as key to each other as parts of the trinity. If you take away God, you have nothing. If you take away Jesus, you have no creation. Remember, all these things were created by him and for him. And if you take away the Spirit, you have no appreciation of God or recognition of Jesus as the Son of God. Do you see how the Trinity is symbiotic? You cannot have one without the other. They form this incredible link between each other, and yet they exist with one God. Michael Reeves is the author of this, one of the best books I've ever read on the Trinity, The Good God, the Good God which is also one of the easiest books I've ever re uh, read on the Trinity. And he said this, The Son and the Father, or the Son and the Spirit, rather, are the Father's agents bringing about the will of the Father. So now we get a little bit more of who Jesus is. We still haven't left verse 1. This is still just verse 1 of John chapter 1. This incredible book. We get so much within it. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now we go on to look at the fact that he was in the beginning with God. And so what is equally awe-inspiring about the Trinity is the fact that God has chosen to reveal himself through it. He's chosen to reveal himself through us, through this relationship with the Son and the Spirit. And yet we recognize from Michael Reeves that the Son and the Spirit are the agents by which God does things. That leads Paul to write onto in Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For all things were created by him and for him. And through him. This is the Jesus that we're talking about this morning. This is the Jesus that we're remembering when we talk about his birth as a baby at Christmas. That he is an agent of the Father. And please, I don't disparage agent in the word. I use it in the fact that it is simply there as a verb. It is there the way that God chose to do what he did. And yet, as awe-inspiring as the Trinity is, what is even more awe-inspiring is the fact that the holy, righteous, and immutable fellowship is willing to extend that hand of fellowship to us who are, by our very nature, unholy, unrighteous, and fickle. So we look at the amazement of the Trinity. We look at the complexity of the relationship that God has within himself. And he says, I want you to be part of it. He says, I want you to be in my relationship. He says, I want to love you. I want to spend eternity with you. As Lawson prayed when we were out the rack this morning, what Jesus did for God was to open the relationship up for us by his death on the cross. 
We have this incredible complex mechanism of the Trinity. And yet God wants to extend that hand of fellowship to us this morning. So verse 3 then, as we come on to, unpacks this statement. And it gives us the nature and the relationship a bit more into what God has done for us. God is the master behind creation. And Jesus is the mechanism by which God creates. John tells us plainly, there is nothing in creation that exists without Jesus being the way in which it was created. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Other versions put it, nothing came to be without him who has made it came to be. We get these incredible statements. We get these incredible glimpses from just three verses that God, this exuberantly loving Father who wants to create, who wants relationship with the creation, does it in such a way that he makes these things through the agent of his Son. Maybe some of you think, okay, well, actually, if that's the case then, when God said, let there be light, you tell me, was Jesus doing the calculations? Maybe. Who knows? I wasn't there. Put it in your book of questions that you're going to ask God when you get to heaven. Because it's in mine. And yet we find out from this, we get this intricate glimpse into the relationship of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the mechanism by which these things are created. And yet Jesus is the word in creation. And God said. And God said. And God said. And God said. And it was Jesus that put these things into creation. God spoke. And it was Jesus, the agency through which the world and all that we know it, and the things that we don't were created. They were created through the act of speech. Genesis puts into order the things that God creates. And we arrive at the pinnacle of God's creation. Mankind. You and I. Created for a relationship. We are made in the image of God. Capable of emotion. Cognitive thought. Reason. An inbuilt sense of right and wrong and many things that evolution simply cannot explain. Why are we the pinnacle of God's creation? Well, I couldn't think of any better words to put it than that. The stars declare his glory, but they are not made in his image. You are. So us, as we sit here this morning, as we read these first few verses from this incredible passage... We recognize that we were created to be the pinnacle of creation. Why are humans so important to God? Because his son became one. Because his son was willing to forgo everything he had in heaven. From heaven you came helpless babe. Entered our world, your glory failed. 
not to be served, but to serve. And give your life as an offering. This is our God, the servant king. The stars declare his glory, but they are not made in his image. God, with all these abilities that he has given us, that evolution cannot explain, God has made us for a relationship. So just as he has a relationship and a fellowship with his son and his spirit, we arrive at the realisation, as if you haven't picked it up from what enough of what I've said already, that God wants a relationship with us. Here we have a father who loves his son so much that he creates the universe, the stars and the galaxies and everything else for him. I love my son. I might make a meal or some Lego. Or I might put a plaster on him or something like that. I'm sure being a boy I will. But here we have the loving Father of God who created everything around us, everything the sea, with the things that we don't understand and the things that we do understand. The things that we've discovered yet and the things that we haven't discovered yet. Every day, science picks on some new bit of creation. Everybody stands back and goes, oh, wow, look at that, I don't understand it. And this is probably flippant, but I'll say it anyway. God looks at Jesus and said, that was for you. That's who Christ is. That's the Christ of Christmas that we talk about. That's the reason that we need to put Christ back at the centre of everything that we do when we come to this particular time of year. You see, we read in Hebrews that Jesus will be the heir of all things. John is very deliberate in his words. Through him and without him. That one sentence eradicates any notion that Jesus is somehow less than the Son of God. One sentence. How many times have you heard people, when asked the question who Jesus is, say this, that he was a good man, a teacher, or someone significant in history, but they never acknowledge that he was God incarnate? I was once privy to a conversation in the mess room at work, and there was one of our... I can't remember how we got to this topic but somebody said there were two people I'd I'd want to sit down with in history one was Adolf Hitler, the other was Jesus Christ why? because something about Jesus that fascinates people I'll tell you what it is it's the fact that he's God incarnate he's the image of the invisible God He's the one that said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. That's what fascinates people about Jesus. You see, this is John's point. Jesus is God incarnate. He is the Son of God. He is the firstborn overall creation. He is the man to stand in the gap, as Ezekiel talked about. He is your Saviour and he is my Saviour. He is the name that is above every name and that one day every knee will bow. That's the Jesus that we need to be pushing at Christmas. That's the Jesus that we need to be telling people about at Christmas. 
That's who Jesus really is. And so yet, we, before we get carried away and run off into the street proclaiming to all and sundry, we need to understand this. What's the Spirit's role in all of this? We've talked about the Trinity. We've talked about the three persons of God. And now we are back there again. Job 33 verse 4 says this, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Elihu, writing to Job, explains that the Spirit's role in creation. He explains that it is the Spirit of God who gives life. In the Trinity we have the God the Father, who creates through God the Son, Jesus, and the Spirit gives life. You cannot have one without the other. They exist in this intertwining, everlasting relationship with each other. We need to talk history for a moment. And we need to go back to the year 787. There will be many who remember it well. We need to talk about a group of 350 bishops. These bishops met. Their purpose was to write a document. These bishops' purpose was to stand against the movement of the iconoclasts. The iconoclasts were a group of people who were determined to promote iconology as holy. These were the people that gave us the elaborate and ornate cross, not this one. These were the people that said, this is significant. These were the people that took and looked at it and said, look, this is as holy as God is, this thing, whatever it may be. And yet these 350 bishops met, and they met and they formed a council. It was called the Council of Nicaea. And these Nicaean bishops, in opposition to these iconoclasts, created the Nicaean Creed, which creates these words. God, the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, the Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. The creed was to show this, that the Trinity, that the Trinity is the center of all creation. It's the center of all Christianity. So as we think of the incarnate Son of God, we recognize his role in the Trinity and his role in creation. At Christmas, we acknowledge the arrival of Jesus as a human. We cannot help being awe as to what just who Christ is and the awesome plan that God had in place since before the foundation of the earth was laid. But John doesn't end there in verse 3. He doesn't just talk about creation. He goes on to say that in him was life, Life was the light of men. You see, John unveils Jesus as the life and the light of men. This means this, that life has two folds. Firstly, it comes from God. That God creates and sustains physical life for all of us. He holds things together. Here is the creator of the universe who brought the life and earth into existence. And he comes as flesh. God, as a man, came to earth to bring life. You see, God comes to earth to bring life, to, for us to experience what life really means. You see, God wants to, us to experience eternal life. 
We are created for relationship. That's why God said it is not good for man to be alone. God and Jesus have existed in an equally loving relationship. A desire for a relationship that is installed in all of us since Adam and Eve. You see, the life that John refers to is not only eternal, but it can be experienced here on earth. You see, God knows that without him, we cannot have life to the fullest. God is not like a child holding on to some toy. You see, God wants to share these things with us. He wants us to enjoy life and to enjoy it to the full. See, that's why he came. That he came that we might experience life. life. But yet he also goes on to talk about light. And this time that the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. You see, we look upon a world that is dark. Look at the headlines in the past week and see how evil it is coming on a nauseatingly regular daily basis. God says there is only one way to eradicate darkness, evil and sin. And that is Jesus. The word who became flesh. God came to earth where we could escape the darkness. The darkness that is inside all of us. There is no other solution to the problem. There is no power other than God's power which brings us out of the darkness to break us away from sin. You see that I know, as I look upon a group of you this morning, that most of us in this building seen that light we put our faith and our trust in Jesus but that doesn't mean we can sit back and rest on our laurels don't think that we won't fall into darkness that temptation won't get a hold of us and then we can rise above it in our own strength God tells us very plain that we will never be free from temptation Jesus wasn't and neither will we be so as we draw our time to a close this morning we recognize this the point of all these Sunday mornings together as we lead up to Christmas is to point people to the Jesus that I've just introduced you to. It's our responsibility now to go and introduce the world to the Jesus that I have just introduced you to. You see, John recognises the fact that 2,000 plus years ago, God who created the universe and all the world around us became human, born to a young woman, in humble circumstances. Yet John himself will go on to say that the world, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, who was made man in his own image, became human. So finally, then I trust as we've come together and looked at what uh, C.S. Lewis called the grand miracle, we have a fresh appreciation of the meaning of Christmas. And that remember, it is our opportunity to tell all that will listen that for us, to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God.